Welcome to the My Why Podcast, where educational storytellers Jesse Mann and Kristen Travers discuss identity-defining moments with special guests. Inspiration ensues. We are doing something a little different here on My Why Podcast. We are interviewing someone we have never met. He is a member of Residence in Recovery, and he is here to talk a little bit about addiction, recovery, and everything in between. Please welcome Justin. Yeah. Hi, Justin. Hi, how's it going? Good. Thank you so much for coming in and sitting down with us. This is unique because we don't, like Kristen said, we don't know a whole lot about your story. So we're looking forward to telling to other people you. and getting to know you. That's why we really do this is because we want to get to know people. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. My name is Justin. I'm 32 years old. Um, I was born in Toronto, Ontario. Um, I came out here when I was 15 years old to meet my dad. My mom and dad were not together. Um, I've been out here ever since, kind of making a living in the oil patch. Um, I'm a father of two. I'm I'm married, currently, and um, the residence and recovery recovery program uh, essentially gave me the choice to be a better person. I've been an addict for uh, 15 years. Um, some real hard times. Um, but this last, this last four months have just been amazing. Um, what I've gotten back in my life, the clarity and the self-awareness and everything I've really learned and, um, the big change that I've gone through as a person, I guess. Um, so, yeah. So tell me about when you moved from Toronto. So you moved, um, you were living with your mom in Toronto? Uh, I was living with my grandparents okay. actually. See, um... My mom was an addict also. Okay. Um, my dad left when I was around seven years old, who also was an addict. Um, I think I was repeating grade nine for the second time. Grade nine is high school in Ontario. And I failed again. And, um, you know, they had some people talk to me and tell me about life. But I was young. I didn't really understand repercussions and all that right. then, right? I, I smoked pot and I was hanging around people that... You know, I thought we're cool, and I thought I had an idea on what life was supposed to be. Um, I didn't really have any ambitions of being anything, no big hopes or dreams. Um, I'd probably end up in a dead-end job and um, until one day my grandma decided to call my dad because the rumor was that he was doing pretty good with the business. Um, so they one day told me that I'm going to go and go and meet my dad out in Alberta. Um, they got me a plane ticket and uh, yeah, I met him for the first time, I guess, since I was seven when I was 15. Um, my mom uh, was on welfare in Toronto. We didn't have a lot of money. Um, my grandma and grandpa were very Catholic and religion oriented. They, they taught me a lot of my good morals, but you know, I was young and I had my own ideas and what I thought I wanted my life to be like. Uh, when I met my dad, um, he picked me up in a sports car. Um, I remember uh, he pulled out uh, a bag of weed and told me to start rolling joints. And I just remember thinking, where have you been all my life? <laughs> um, you know, he had everything, like you name it, uh, jet boats, sports cars, snowmobiles, quads. He had his own business, 30 or 40 employees. And it just kind of opened my eyes to like, wow, like someone can do this. Like I've never had any real role models with anything, like anything materialistic. And mm -hmm. that's kind of, kind of where I, I guess started to learn a little about what I wanted in life or what I thought I wanted in life at that time. Right. Uh, he, he became my hero overnight, um, you know, through materialistic things at that time. You know, I was, I was proud to have a dad who had something and, um, you know, life was good for a little bit. Um, so when you moved here, um, how was that transition like, like moving into a new high school, <coughs> all of that kind of stuff? Well, it was actually a huge change because I, uh, I was, 
I lived in Toronto, and we flew to uh, a town called, well, we f- I flew in Edmonton, and we drove um, 12 hours north to a little town called Zama City with a population of maybe 100 people from, like, 4 million. Uh, oh it's, like, 80K of a dirt road to get there off the highway. So it was really different. Um, I, I can't explain to you how, how like, shocking that was. Mm-hmm. But I, I was... I was I was happy with it, you know. It was more than I ever had, and um, it was exciting, you know. It was really exciting. I I didn't get into school, but uh, he put me in I, I forget what it's called, but you do the modules, right. um, and I did that for a little bit. But again, like between smoking pot and then being spoiled from my dad when I was fifteen, uh, I had other ideas. Um, my 16th birthday came because I left that summer. I turned 16 in December and I got my H2S ticket, which at that time was all you needed to go to work. And I remember I got my H2S ticket that day and I was out on a drilling rig that night shoveling out their rig tanks. And uh, I never looked back. Wow. Yeah. So when your grandparents say to you, you're off, was there any any? fear was were you scared or was it more like just excitement well they told me he was successful and I was pretty excited about that because like at the time there was a lot of drama going on you know my mom she wasn't doing good like I remember my mom didn't even come see me leave um I didn't think about that for a while but uh you know I I was excited you know uh, a child really wants to know their parents I think and it takes a lot for them not to want to and I was excited to meet my dad you know it was something that uh, something that was missing in my life I had a few role models but um, I wanted to meet my dad and I wanted you know I wanted to find out if it was true if he was doing good because I was told he was an addict all all my life by my mom and uh, yeah I, I was really excited I'd never been on an airplane before so that was pretty you know that was the first air uh I'm on a plane out of many to come. Um, yeah. So now you're 16. You're out in the workforce with a, a lot of, you know, grown men that yes. are doing a lot of, you know, interesting things. So how did that kind of shape your life? Well, yeah. Um, I, st- I remember I started playing hockey out there for, for the high level. He got me into hockey uh, before I started working. Um, I lost a friend to a stabbing, actually. Uh, he was my first friend that I had. He was my age. I played hockey with him. Uh, I was supposed to go to a New Year's party with him one day, uh, except uh, the weekend before, I was staying at his house, and we snuck out to a house party, and I ended up getting pneumonia because we had to walk, like, two miles through the field to meet his friend who met us by the highway. Uh, I got pneumonia, and I wasn't able to go to this New Year's party. Um, and I remember my dad telling me, you know, I was I was sick and I was eating, and he told me that uh, that my friend Kane had uh, had been murdered at the party that we were supposed to go to. So that was a pretty tough blow. Mm-hmm. Um, I would make friends uh, working for my dad, employees who, you know, they were uh, interesting people. A lot of them, you know, um, you meet a lot of funny characters who go away up north to to work. Um, it's a hard place to keep people. Um, so I think the dynamic of the people that were working there was more common to not your regular social crowd. Right. Mm. So, sorry, when you, when you lose your friend, like that had to have been absolutely horrific and and awful and you weren't there and that plays into some of that. How, as, as a young man, did you process that? Well, I think what helped is it hurt. I remember it hurting, but I was pretty resilient, you know, and he, uh, I didn't have too many friends on that team, but once that happened, I guess we kind of banded together and I really got to know some of the other guys. I I was pretty resilient to that. And I actually had just lost my cousin two months earlier to the uh, same thing. He was murdered and stabbed in a town called Essex, Ontario. Uh, I flew out to that funeral, and yeah, that was within two months. Um, I, I, I can't really get into too much detail 
uh, I think I was pretty resilient to it. Um, I was working, I was making big money at the time. I had a lot to distract myself with. You know, my dad had snowmobiles and I, you know, I was busy. And then at that time I started flying back to um, Toronto with um, my pockets full of money to spend time with all my old friends. And I was pretty popular once that started to happen. Well, and I think as a 16-year-old kid, you don't necessarily process anything. I think you're just carrying on with life, right? And, and then when you get older, you kind of think, maybe I didn't necessarily cope as well. But, yeah, you know. yeah, definitely. Uh, I've learned over life, uh, mourning is a process. And you don't always understand how hard it hits you. Um, you know, that's just one small factor in my life, though. You know, that was kind of the beginning of my life in Alberta. You know, and um, I worked for my dad for a few years on and off and uh, he was a hard guy to work for right like we've been in a few physical altercations uh you know he was very verbally abusive he he had this hardcore attitude of you gotta work 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 and you know the, the answer to life is money and you know if you want to be happy this is how you're going to do it you know my dad gave me good ethics that way um but that was it you know and um it took me a, a lot later on in life to realize that he was he was lacking some characteristics that maybe I would want as a man, right? Like, I was really attracted to those materialistic things that he had. But uh, years later, I would I would really not like the person that he was because of those things and what he sacrificed, you know, uh, with his character and to his family to obtain those things. Um, yeah, I had a real hard relationship with my dad. He was... It was a love-hate relationship. Right. Um, yeah, I, I definitely have some daddy issues <laughs> when it comes to my father. And, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm grateful that he got me out here and uh, he gave me an opportunity, you know. I love it out west here. It's, uh, especially for someone with no education like me, you can definitely make a good living and raise a family. Um, but there's, there's more to, there's more to life than just coming out here and, making a living right you gotta you gotta I was pretty young at the time but it was family that brought me out here and I mean if someone's coming out here for their family they gotta remember they gotta remember that because it's easy to get lost in uh, the shiny with the shiny things that you obtain with money out here you know it's something that I'm still kind of trying to get over to this day you know my life I'm worth more than what's in my bank account yeah so that is really important and that's very profound and I think a lot of people struggle with that especially in the oil industry because you do make a lot of money with not a lot of education you, you know you you can make a lot of, of material things um, and it's easy to forget family um, so back up so now you're you're 16 making money lots of money so how is your teenage life going? Well, at first it's going pretty good. Um, I would fly back to Toronto, you know, with with all the money that I'd make. I'd meet up with my old friends. Um, obviously pretty popular with right. the money and the freedom that I have, right? Uh, so I make a lot of friends and uh, I get in some relationships with women and... Uh, were you using at that time? Mm, I was smoking pot and drinking regularly, right. and I had dabbled in a little bit of cocaine. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, the end of one of my first serious relationships that uh, I really started getting into a heavy use. But um, I never considered it a big problem because I always had a means. I mean, if I ever was in that desperate place, I would just fly back to daddy and go back to work right like it was it was one night of crying and telling myself what's wrong with me and then it's just a plane ticket to fix it right right so yeah it was it was definitely the start of uh, the start of it <laughs> so when when the substances start to kind of take over when are, are you hiding this from other people or are you around people that are embracing that sort of behavior with you where you're at a party and everybody's doing it together or are you kind of starting to to hide any of that or 
a little bit of both, actually. Obviously, I was around people who who would do it, but I knew something was wrong when they would all go to bed and I was up two days later, right? I knew, I knew from a pretty early age that uh, I would use in excess, especially when I have a means. So, um, yeah, early, I knew early on that I, I had some issues with drugs and uh, I would just cure it by going back to work, which is something that I would continue for years. So did you use while you went back to work? Um, there were times, like in the first little bit, but not, it wouldn't be till later that, uh, that that would happen, really reoccur. I would actually leave to come back out west, and uh, I would hardly ever touch it, because I was kind of protected uh, working for my dad in that first little bit, and it wouldn't really get to be a big problem until I left and kind of went on my own. So and it kind of like... That was your means for your drug addiction, right? So you protected work. Yeah, exactly. Right. It was my little getaway, right? Right. And, and I wasn't... I had somewhat of control back then. Um, I still had a grasp of other things giving me pleasure. It, it, would, it, would, uh, it wouldn't be till around my early 20s where it manifested to be the one thing that I wanted and uh, be a controlling obsession, you know? Um, yeah. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, what was the, what was the tipping point sort of? So you're ebbing, you're flowing, you're coming home, you're able to really party. And then when you realize, okay, I maybe don't have the money necessarily, or you need a physical break from it, you can come back here. Well, and for people, sorry, like for people that don't have an active addiction, they don't understand what that drive is like like can you describe that a little bit oh the obsession yeah it's i would uh i would plan for weeks you know uh if i didn't have a means to get i was i was imagining the means to get um planning fantasizing you know scheming lying uh oh it was it, it it's crazy um it's, it's really sick um, how it just takes over and everything, your dreams, you, you can take your, your most purest dream and it'll corrupt it. I heard a one guy say that I really like that uh, addiction takes all your good quali- qualities and bastardizes them to, to feed that addiction, right? So that's, it's kind of something I believe in. I, 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 not to be have a big ego, which I do have, but I, I think I was a good addict because I had a lot of good attributes. You know, I was always a hard worker um, on time. I was always good with people. I always liked people, gave them the benefit of a doubt. And I, I think that's why addiction really thrived on me because I had all these powerful attributes that it can corrupt and kind of take over to thrive. Used them against you, used your strengths against you. Yeah, because, I mean, it's easy to call out someone when they don't show up on time, and it's easy to call on someone or call out someone when they are, you know, not doing their work. But when you're actually functioning, you're a functioning addict, people let it slide more often. And it was a big driver of my motivation, too. Like, I, I know if I was planning to use one day, I would work almost twice as hard to go and get it done, right? It's, Sometimes it would be an issue because, you know, you don't always make the smartest decisions when your focus is on getting drugs at the end of the day. But it was definitely a driver and pushing me to work harder or faster or be meaner, you know. Yeah. And so you mentioned relationships and how, like, you came out here for family. Um, So early on in your 20s, how did that affect your relationships? Well, I was really distant, actually, um, when I came out here. I shut out a lot of my family out back in Ontario. Uh, because once I met my dad, I, I, I kind of looked down at people down there because I was like, what are you guys doing with your lives? Like, why, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you come out and, you know, make money and have stuff? I just, I couldn't put it together on why people didn't want to live better. So I, it really strained those relationships. I, 
there were people that were, were really good to me and close to me, healthy, some father figures that uh, I just, I didn't talk to because I guess I just held people up to a higher standard after I came out here and I learned about the almighty dollar. Um, I, yeah, it was kind of a weird time because when you're, when you're a teenager, you're just starting kind of relationships, right? I, I pretend to think I knew what I was doing back then, but really it was just kind of the learning playground. Um, all my relationships I would create in my early 20s were mostly bad, you know, because that's what I wanted. I wanted those bad people because there was something that they had that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I wouldn't really pick and choose who you were or where you came from as long as you had that bag of dope that I wanted to get to. Right. So to get into some of the, the really tough stuff, and, and I mean, definitely only share what you're, what you're comfortable sharing, but if you could tell us a little bit about some of those low points that you had and some of those, those pieces that you used as a foundation to start, you know, regaining and becoming sober. Well, it's hard for a person to come to desperation or the need to change if there's no repercussions. And I mean, as a teenager and in my early 20s when I was partying, yeah, there'd be times where I felt bad. But I guess when it really got bad is when, uh, when I met my future wife and uh, she got pregnant and we had my oldest. Um, now my lifestyle will do affect these people because I took them under my wing. I've decided to have a relationship with this woman and we had a child and this is kind of unfortunately where my addictive behavior really started thriving why is to why that is i i have a few theories i don't really want to get into it unfortunately this is when it happened and uh they paid the most they were hurt um i you know i, I got really bad i was pretty selfish with my money because up until this point i i had I could do whatever I want with it. I could fly to Toronto. I could party here, party there. I can blow it all and just go back to work and only ha have myself to worry about. But now I had, I had mouths to feed. I had rent and bills, cell phones, and you name it. So, um, yeah, my daughter was born in 2011. And that's kind of when my addiction flared up. I, we had moved to Leduc and I was working in around the city and out of town and I had relationships with people who would use drugs and I would thrive off them and they would thrive off me. And, you know, I wouldn't come home some nights or I would lie about where I was and uh, use that opportunity to use until, you know, one day I thought I needed help. It, it, I, I guess, yeah, sorry, it's, no, I'm just, thank you so much for sharing that, it's, uh, it's, it's a lonely road in the dark area, um, because once you start reaching out for help, you kind of label yourself an addict, it takes a lot of courage to ask for help, but then eventually, you know, you're just, you're just having people enable you. I've reached out for help so many times over the years, <clears throat> at least three or four times with different companies, you know, with loved ones, forget it. I mean, I've, I've, I've probably called my wife a thousand times telling her that things would be different and putting her through horrible stress, not knowing where I am or not calling her for days. Um, and then just the desperate situations I'm in, you know, alone because you end up alone in that world you know usually the party starts and with a few people but then eventually when your addiction thrives you're, you're alone in a dark room because you don't you don't want to share with anyone and then when the party's over two two or three days later and you're feeling like crap of course you want to reach out to the world and you know you, you think you need help until you're healthy enough for the next run or you got a means to do it again right My, uh, my really dark side has been 10 years of a dark side, you know, the party was over when I, when, uh, when I had other people counting on me, 
Um, I'm sure it would have got worse too if I didn't have a family, but that's really, that's really where I became self-centered. You know, I, I, I brought a child into this world and, um, I only had one thing on my mind and it was, it was getting high, you know, it was, it was crazy. I'm still coming to terms with all the things that I've done, accepting them and yeah. <laughs> That's, thank you for sharing that. When you become a parent, your whole life flips upside down and you kind of think of things from a different perspective. And feel free to not answer this. So how do you think about your mom now that you've become a parent? That has a, you haven't, a, a, what were having an active addiction when you brought a child into the world? Um, what do I think? I love my mom. My mom is a good person. Um, all addicts are good people. You know, and I, that's something that I, I'm learning and discovering. I, I, honestly, I haven't given that too much thought. That That's some deep work right there. Sorry. No, that's, no. That's what no, I do. That's, that's okay, <laughs> thinking about my parents and where they are and accepting that with them. Um, I, I've accepted my mom's past. I, I don't really hold a grudge. I know it has some repercussions, and um, I'm trying to be self-aware of that. You know, uh, I'm learning about different attachment styles and why maybe the way I am due to the way I was raised. Um, I try to be open-minded about why my parents were the way they were because, you know, I'm, I'm changing my life. I hope that my kids, they'll have to, eventually they'll know about this part of my life. Um, but I hope mine's got a little bit of a happier ending to say than my dad's. My mom's doing all right. You know, um, my dad, unfortunately, he uh, passed away three or four years ago and um, it was nothing to do with addiction, but he was an active addict. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of things unresolved with him. But yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. Thank you for answering it. Because it is, it is a vulnerable subject. And I do feel like if we don't kind of face the past, we are bound to repeat it. And um, I think it's very good to kind of look at that, you know, and forgive a lot of things that we, we've been through, you know, from a different perspective. And so we are obviously strong advocates for residents in recovery and for Tyler Lorenz and his team and the great work that they do. If you haven't uh, seen Tyler's story, we definitely recommend going into our show notes and we'll have Tyler's story tagged there. And we were lucky enough that he sat down with us um, over a year ago, I guess yeah, now, and, uh, and shared. And so definitely go take, take a look at Tyler's story. And, and Tyler came to, to Boyd and, and brought residents in recovery here. And so is this your your first time kind of taking sobriety, you know, and bull by the horns kind of a thing? Or have you gone to other programs and, and tried that before? This is the longest I've been sober in 15 years, as of right now. Um, oh, clap for that. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Exciting. Um, I had a goal um, about five years ago. I had to, I went to a treatment center for my problem. I was in a really bad spot. Um, I had a lot of, I had a big trauma happen to me actually. Um, um, I, yeah, I was put into a treatment center five years ago. Um, I was pretty messed up when I went there. Um, the effects of the drugs have just clouded my mind. I was there for about 34 days in and out, kind of rushed me through the program with what I had to do. And I can be honest with you today and telling you, I don't remember half of what I learned there. You know, the effects of drugs just don't go away because you're clean for a week, you know, and the day I went in there, I, I just come off a three or four day binge. Um, when I got out, I immediately went, said, I have to go to work and this is how I'm going to live my life. And I didn't really follow the plan of, what they set out for me to do and I I don't blame the place for it but I was not really in a headspace um, what um, the difference between then and now is that um, 
residence recovery, it's more of an ongoing thing, right? Like time heals, you know, you can't, you can't expect someone to go into a recovery center come out in 30 40 90 days and expect them to be sober that's that's not how it works it's not a car wash right um i was doing the program for three months with tyler he worked with me and uh, he gave me a place to stay we did our programs in the morning and afternoon he put me into mental health i was required to go to seven meetings a week and and really it was it was uh a routine that I was learning, you know, and it wasn't, I had a date to go out. This was just, this was how life was going to be until, um, I got the treatment and, uh, it, it was different for me. You know, it was really different, uh, just changing my lifestyle. You know, I, I did lost my job. Uh, my trucks were repoed. My, my wife left me. We lost our house. Um, and, basically my cure to everything was I'll just go back to work and I'll you know and that was the insanity in my brain because it wasn't going to work if I went back to work um when I went into the program um I I had to give everything up I you know there's they say there's one thing you got to change when you're in recovery and that's everything um so from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed I was doing something in recovery and that was the beauty beauty of that place um and you and the freedom i guess you know and they kind of cloud you in a in um sorry a rehab program what tyler's dealing with is is real life like you walk out that door i can pick up my phone and call my dealer you know that's my choice um what i'm doing in the program is real life you know i go to real meetings that anyone can go to anyone can go to those classes but I don't know. I, I everyone's story is a little different, I guess. And I was really desperate for change when I started in Tyler's program. I was in a really dark place. You know, actually, the story of how I got there is quite profound. Pretty amazing. Um, I just had lost my job. Um, no, and I lost my place where I was living. And. Um, I really had lost my will to live that day. I was really desperate. No one, I could, there was no one I can call. I couldn't get into, I wanted to go to rehab, but, um, you know, I didn't have the money for that. I didn't have money for a pack of smokes that day. Um, I was really desperate. I didn't know where I was going to, didn't know where I was going to go. Um, I decided that maybe I can find a meeting because I, I'd known about meetings, of course, and, I attended them barely just to kind of appease my wife when I was with her. So I decided that that day I needed, needed to get to a meeting to what result. I don't know. I just, I knew I couldn't be where I was. So I started walking and, um, as I was walking, I, the things that go through your head after a three day binge are just remotely insane. Um, I was walking down the main strip downtown and I was, I got to get to this meeting or maybe I should just go to the cop shop or maybe I should just run out into the highway and run in front of the semi, you know, like I was really alone and I just, I couldn't deal with it anymore. Um, I remember I really wanted to smoke and um, there was a fellow standing in the street there as I was walking downtown and I was crying. I, I hadn't showered in three or four days. I was just, if you would have saw me, you would have ran for the hills. And uh, I asked him for a smoke and uh, he gave me a smoke and he asked me, how's it going? What's going on, bud? Because I was obviously in distress. And I said, oh, nothing. I'm just looking to go to an NA or AA meeting because there was no NA meeting that I knew of that, that day. And, uh, the gentleman said, well, there's an NA meeting right here. And I looked over and I saw the sign residence and recovery. And that was my first meeting in there. And it was, it was a miracle moment. Like I, I was in the right place at the right time. You know, I had no idea that meeting was going on that night. Um, and I, I really needed to, I really needed to be around some, some people that would understand. And uh, I was 
forced to go to the hospital after they saw my state that night. I was told that um, they were going to send me to detox. They actually chased me down the street. I tried leaving that meeting halfway through because I couldn't bear to be there. They chased me down the street, con tried convincing me for a half an hour that I should go to the hospital. When I finally went, um, these are total strangers that were, were uh, telling me to do this too. Um, <clears throat> a friend of mine, who is a really good friend now, uh, was at the hospital with me for three or four hours just making sure I was all right. You know, They put me under the Mental Health Act because no one could really understand or they didn't trust me you know this is the worst time I've ever told this story um but yeah uh they took me under their wing you know all these people were strangers to me Tyler and everyone in there uh they put me into detox and got me a bed in the program and I, I just couldn't believe how complete strangers not I didn't know a soul in there and they said we're gonna help you and they did like I couldn't believe it I had you know, they put me into detox. They sponsored me in there. I had, I had meals, three square meals a day. I was learning stuff. And the, in the recovery center I was at, I was just so grateful and so determined to to get sober for them when I got out because I was just so desperate for change. I couldn't believe that these people just wanted to help me. You know, it was, it was, it was so weird. Um, no one ever gave me anything. Like, no one cared. They all heard it before, I guess. They, you know, everyone in my family, they, yeah, we know you want to get better, but what are you going to do? And Tyler just swooped me into detox, puts me in a room, you know, they've got food and help me out with whatever I need to get in my recovery. The judgment-free zone that I know Tyler works very hard to, to create has to help with that, you know? Like, it's, I know where you've been. And, and I care about you and you can tell me anything and it's not going to change what I think of you. I'm just here to help. That judgment-free zone has to have had an impact on that. No? I, I was blown away. Like, literally, I was, I was a mess in that meeting. I was crying. Everyone was looking at me, you know. Like, generally, those, someone's not in that state. That's where you're supposed to be when you're in that state. But most of the time, you've got a head on your shoulders in the meeting. And I was a mess. Like, I could just feel the eyes on me as I, I was crying. And I, I, I'd snot on my face. And I just, I was hopeless in that moment. I, I was, I, I thought I was going to walk out of that meeting and be alone again, right? I was going to walk. The, I didn't know where I was going to go. Even when I left early, I, I had no clue where I was going. I had nowhere to go. I had nothing. And I got chased down the street and, you know, these, these people, they just cared right away. And it, it was weird. It was like, what do you want with me? You know, right. leave me alone. Get away from me. You know, you need a smoke bud here. Have a smoke. We'll get you a Gatorade. We're going to get you to the hospital. And they, they called me in the morning, you know, it was, there was a follow up. I'm like, holy, holy crap. Like, you know, what do you want? And then, uh, the day later, they told me to come to the office. They're going to send me to detox. And I'm like, well, I, I can't pay for detox. Like, I don't have nothing. Like, Tyler gave me a pack of smokes. And he's like, no, you're just going. Like, and it, it blew my mind. Like, I was like, holy, I couldn't do this on my own. I, I, had, I didn't know what to do. You know, I, I doubt I could. So it, it was surreal, definitely. It was a surreal moment. Uh, a big, huge, life-changing moment, you know. What, what a stranger did for me that day is essentially what why I'm here today. Well, and I mean, that's what Tyler is. Like, Tyler is kindness, essentially. Like, and I think that's what makes recovery happen is the support and everyone around you supporting and cheering you on, which not a lot of people get, you know, and I've, I'm sure you, that you've seen that. Yeah, um... It takes an addict to know an addict. It's it's hard to explain. You know, the best help that I've ever got is from other addicts. Um, not professionals, not family. As much as I love all those people, they're, they're great. But um, it's hard to understand what I've been through unless you've been through it. And it's hard for me to open up about what I've been through unless, you know, that... You're, I trust you and you know what it's like. Um, 
and, and even going into that program when I after I got out of the detox and I was like well now I got there I kind of knew what I was going to do the classes and everything and I was like well who are these people you know it's funny like the day I went into that meeting I was the worst person in the world but then all of a sudden I got a deep detox and I've got this huge ego I was like what am I doing in this room with these people you know <laughs> I'm better than this um but um it was it was a great time you know and I learned a lot uh through the cognitive behavioral therapy and uh you know, I, I learned a lot of things with people with problems like mine, and I know that I'm not the worst and I'm not the best. It's really, uh, I got have a new sense of humility um, being around addicts, and th this is going to be my life, right? Like, I'm not, I'm a work in progress, and I, I'd like to think that I'll always be, I will just gradually get better over time. Um, and Tyler held me accountable to getting better. And he gave me a lot of resources too, right? Like, you know, by saying that I had to go to a meeting every day, you know, I obviously at the time I didn't like meetings because I wasn't going. But, you know, by the time I, I was a month in, I, I loved meetings and I had a really good relationship with people in these meetings. And I was doing, doing the work that Tyler gave me to do. Um, and I had connection with people and that was the thing, right? Like, the opposite of addiction is connection and without knowing it I was healing myself by starting these relationships with these healthy addicts <laughs> recovering addicts right. in the spirit of, of reducing stigma and I mean you touched on it so well by saying the people who've understood you the best are and helped you the most are the ones that have gone through some of those same things what advice would you have for those people that that want to help and, and want to understand but but don't. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, that, that That is a tough one. I don't know if I have the answer for that because um, if you're not in addiction and you don't understand addiction, I mean, there's meetings for that with people uh, like Al-Anon or Naranon meetings and uh, they kind of run through that. But it, it, there's a fine line because you don't, you don't want to be incompassionate, but yet you don't want to enable because uh, one of the things that I credit to me wanting to change was the fact that I lost everything and everyone. You know, I can, yeah, my, my wife took me back <clears throat> so many times and, you know, it was out of love, but really she was just enabling me of what I was doing and even my work, you know, I, I, I blew shift after shift after shift. <laughs> And uh, I just kept doing what I was doing, and it took me to lose everything to really be desperate. And that desperation of um, not not having anything, and I, I knew there needed to be change, right? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. I don't know what to tell people that don't understand. You know, I, I know there's help out there, and I, I, I've seen some miracles. I've seen some walking miracles of people in uh, resonance and recovery and what that program's done for them. You know, it's a miracle that they make it there one day, you know. That's the sad thing about addiction is it's tough and a lot of people don't make it, but Tyler has 20 people in those rooms that day. That's 20 people that aren't out doing drugs or aren't aren't going to OD that day. Like, that's, that's the power of that, right? That's 20 people who aren't going to call their families in desperate need. You know, every day, it's it's day to day. You know, I live for today. I'm not worried about my my past, and I'm not worried what's going to happen tomorrow because I can't change the past, and um, it's not 100% that I'm going to be around tomorrow. I really like that. Like, yeah. really, we, we talked about, we talk about this all the time, how we have to be present, and, and if we're worried about the future and the past, we get we get anxious, and that's, that's when you know addictions kick in or that's when you know we ruminate, ruminate about everything so I think that's a very important topic yeah is there anything um anything that you can say so I'm thinking about those 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 binges those two three days and and people don't understand what that looks like and what what's going through your mind during that time and how, how difficult it is and how you get caught in that dark place 
can you share a little bit about those dark places to the people who don't get it? Well, you see, those binges are a root of a deeper problem. Um, addiction stems from a lot of mental health things. Uh, they say, or you know, in meetings that if you're a real addict, your problem isn't drugs. Because there's a reason why I did that much drugs, right? Drugs would give me something that would help me cope with the world or help me cope with whatever was bothering me or help me even be happier. You know, I, I did drugs when I was sad, bored, happy to celebrate, to mourn, like, you know, any day that ended with why. Um, when you took drugs out of my system, I had to deal with these feelings on my own. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have that mass that I had for years. These, these binges, like, oh, they're, um, they're horrible. You know, you can't, you can't stop. I don't know. You're, you're chasing something. You're chasing something and you just can't stop. And I, I tell you one thing, um, at the end of it, it's hell. It's, it's really hell. And that's when you really see the desperate addict. And that's, that's when the bad side comes out because you're just desperate and you're willing to do anything just to keep that going. And what you're keeping going is just horrible. Like, I don't, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's indescribable. You know, it's, it's something that I never want to experience again. It's, you know, and I have, I have to remember that. I have to remember that. <clears throat> the funny thing you say about the past, the past is my tool. You know, I remember my last day that day and I wound up in residence recovery, how desperate I was. And that's essentially where I'm going to be if I decide to go back to drugs or alcohol. You know, the past, I got to remember my last, my last 90 days because it's that last 90 days I've decided, I decided to change. Right, and I know I switched gears there a little bit, but go ahead, Christine. Well, no, I was just going to say, you're very, you're so insightful. And I was just going to ask, like, if there's anything that you could say to those people that um, think about using, you know, like, was there a moment where you thought, you know, maybe I should or maybe I shouldn't? There's a lot of kids out there that think about it, but they don't or they do. And I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know why people get addicted. I don't know why, if it's just purely mental health or if it's a familiar trait or whatever. But there's there's people that have those moments of like, should I use or should I not? Yeah. Um, I don't think scaring is the tactic you want to use right, when it comes to drugs right. and alcohol because yeah. I don't think you can control anyone and what they're going to do. I, I think quite the opposite. What I think is what's important is that you have open dialogue about it because if you can't talk about it, you can't fix the problem. Right. You know what I mean? So if, if um, a child is too scared to talk to their parents about doing drugs, well, then their parents aren't going to know they're doing drugs. And if you blow up on them about doing it, you know, when it does become a problem, they can't reach out. Um, I've got honesty, you know. It's hard. You know, you tell an 18-year-old uh, that's having a good time. Uh, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but, you know, an 18-year-old doing cocaine with his two girlfriends, you tell him that's a bad life to have. Good luck. Right. You know? he, doesn't, <laughs> yeah. he doesn't know what repercussions yeah, are yet, exactly. right? And it, it takes a long time to go to that. But if you know... And you can have a conversation about it. I mean, you've got more power there. Right. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. It's and about open dialogue and having honest conversations. And, and listening, I'm sure, right? People actually sitting, listening, asking questions and, and, and trying not to come from that place of judgment. Yeah, I mean, and you, you can judge all you want. I mean, the, the hardest critic of an addict is themselves, mm -hmm. you know, and... I mean, I didn't really think of anyone's judging when I was going out to get a, get my fix. It, there was not, none of that, right? Um, yeah, it's, that's a tough one. That's, uh, I can tell you that there, it, it's hard times ahead if you, if you don't get a control of it. And I can tell you that it, it leads to, it always leads to bad things. 
you know, that life. There's nothing glamorous about it. Um, it might seem so in the beginning and it might take years for it to kick in, but eventually it's going to kick you in the ass. And if it kicks you in the ass like I did, well, I really, I really hope you get help. Um, it took me 15 years to figure, you know, and I'm, I'm still a work in progress, right? I'm four months and I think 11 days clean. And this is just, I'm a newcomer still. Like, um, I'm thrilled that I was invited here to talk about this. I'm not the most sober person in the program. I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the newest person in the program, but, um, I've definitely reaped the rewards of it. Right. Um, I, I had a life, I had vehicles and a house and, you know, I, I wasn't a street person, but I got to that point. I lost it all. You know, it's very slowly and painfully. I, I lost it all. And, you know, God knows where I would be if um, I didn't walk into residence and recovery that night. Well, everybody has a story, and, and thank you so much for sharing yours. I, I love how you you said, you know, you're not the most sober, and there's other people. Well, every everybody has a story, and everybody has a story worth listening to. And Kristen said it perfectly. I don't I don't know if you realize how profound you are yes. and how insightful. So you insightful. Some, some of these one-liners, I'm like, well, as soon as they leave, we're going to write these things down. Like, you have so much to offer, and, and we really appreciate you sharing all of that. Is there anything in closing that that you and may, maybe your advice would be for somebody who has an addict in the home? And maybe your advice would be for people who are in your shoes. What is something that you'd like to, I guess, leave us with? Well, I mean, nothing I say is original. Everything that... I say that you might find insightful or things has been inspired by me um, in the rooms of NA and also in the, the, the residence and recovery. Um, you're not the worst, you know, out there. If you think you are, you're, you're not, because I've been there. Uh, go to a meeting, reach out, talk to people. You need to connect to people. You, you know, you go to a meeting, stay, talk to someone. You know, um, someone out there has been through what I've been through and uh, they're willing to help and they are willing to help. You just you just need to make it to those meetings. I, I, I mean, a person in addiction needs to get their ass to a meeting. And that's the beauty of that. Just go. Just got to get there and reach out and talk to someone. That's wonderful advice. Thank you so much for being here, Justin. Thank you for your strength and in, in coming and being so vulnerable. In closing Thank today, you. we just want to direct you towards floydminstermentalhealth.ca or if you're interested in learning more about residence and recovery, please visit residenceandrecovery.com. These links as well as other information for support is also available in our show notes. Thank you to Justin and Tyler.